everybody, Eric here. Welcome to episode two of What's the Point podcast. Uh, today in our podcast, we're going to be talking about the book of Leviticus. Now, keep in mind, Exodus has just ended. Exodus ends with this amazing climax of God descends from Mount Sinai onto the, the tent of meeting. The glory of God is in the presence of Israel. And Leviticus opens with this reality, this new reality that God is, God is among them. And, and it's answering this question, how, how can sinful Israel be in the presence of holy God? Um, now today in our podcast, in our conversation, we're going to be talking about what's Leviticus's place in redemptive history? Why does God give us this book? Why should we read it? What's its relevance to our lives? And then really focusing on the holiness of God. God is so good. He is so holy and he invites us in. So I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Okay, guys, so we're just going to jump right into this. Uh, So fun fact about the book of Leviticus. According to rabbinic tradition, the book of Leviticus was the first book given to children in Judaism. I've never seen Leviticus covered in any children's Bibles that I've read. Uh, But but what do you guys think? What kind of response do you think we'd get if we started handing out copies of Leviticus to first-time parents? (laughs) Thanks for not letting us prep this question beforehand, Eric. Uh, I think uh, Megan would quit as a children's minister. Uh, I think our children's ministry program would not be the most successful. <laughs> I'm just picturing right now trying to make up songs out of the book of Leviticus. Like, we'll tell, I'll tell them uh, some of these laws, you know, trying to make up kids' ministry songs with these, with it from this book. Right, I mean, I, I assume that children's Bible authors skip Leviticus for a reason. But yeah. like, I don't, what do I do with that? I don't, I don't know of any children's Bible that has a book of Leviticus in it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, the, but it may, but also at the same time, it might there must be something to it, especially in its original cultural context, that it was important for them to see, you know, what did they need to do to stand in God's presence. So there, there's something about that, even though it seems weird to us so far removed. Yeah. Plus, it shows our children are spoiled, right? Yeah. We're, we're soft compared to the old school rabbinic traditions. Yeah, we need, we need to step it up and let them know the law, right? That's yeah. right. I think we should be like, law. I'm going to go home right now and tell Hudson to decide. Memorize the book of Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I get the impression that, that many people think of Leviticus as, as boring or cumbersome or, or just weird. I mean, even our conversation prior to this, we were... There's some weird stuff. There's some, some stuff we don't we probably don't even want to really mention on this podcast, but but it also seems to be a place where a lot of people's Bible reading plan dreams come to die. I mean, this is where we're like, okay, I have all these good intentions, but not anymore. I'm done. Leviticus, you got me again. That should uh, be the tagline, right? Leviticus, where your Bible reading plans come to die. Right. Yeah, this, this should be a, a horror movie. Yeah. Um, but then from my own Bible study, I get the impression that, that people of the Old Testament didn't share that view. They didn't think of Leviticus that way, as, as Danny's talking about. And so I wanted to read this. So this is stepping outside of the Pentateuch for a moment, but, but check this out. This, this is the opening verses of Psalm 1, and it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, when I was in, in seminary, I had an Old Testament professor who was like, how many of you guys uh, meditate day and night on Leviticus? They're like, uh, is, is that what it's talking about? Um, so, so let's start here. Why is Leviticus important for redemptive history? Yeah, this is a good question. And I know that most of you out there are probably asking that. And it's extremely important. Um, it's, it's a gospel it's a gospel book of the Bible. It points us to Christ. It prepares us for Christ. Actually, the authors of various New Testament books 
refer back to Leviticus over and over again. Jesus himself refers back to it. That some, people, some scholars would say that the book of Hebrews and 1 Peter are both commentaries on the book of Leviticus. So uh, on that note, how does the Bible begin? It begins with this idea, that not idea, but this account of them in Eden, and then they lose it. And then it starts over again, and it starts over again with Abraham, but it's 400 years, and then they come out of Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai, and then we get Leviticus. This is what God gives them. He says, build this tabernacle at the, end, at the end of Exodus, and then he gives them this book, and he says, this is what it means for you to be my people. And uh, that's, so it's, it's like, almost like Eden 2.0. Like God is, is starting over again with these people, and he's giving them his presence, but he's also giving them his, this way, this system, for them to be in his presence. But if we think about it in overall redemptive history, let's look at how the Bible ends. So we know how it begins. It begins in Eden, but this is how it ends. In Revelation 21, John sees this vision, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. From God prepared as a beautifully dressed bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place, literally the Greek word God's tabernacle, a, a portable tent, not a temple. There's a Greek word for the word temple, but it says God's dwelling place, God's tabernacle, is now among the people, and he will dwell, same word, it's the verb, tabernacle with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. And this is because of the uh, accomplished work of Christ, and this is when God does fulfill all things. But the people, we need, we dwell with God in Eden, and then the Bible ends with us dwelling with God. And, and if you go on to read the rest of chapter uh, 21, it talks about the things that don't exist when the people fully have God. And these are the things that Leviticus is trying, God is trying to prepare them that you don't need these things. You don't need these, these things, these gods, these idols, these sexual sins. You need me. You need my presence. So the book of Leviticus really is showing us that God dwells with his people. And it's bringing us back to what we have lost in Eden. And it's preparing us for the redemptive work of Christ. And ultimately preparing us for what the final day when God will dwell with us. And we will dwell with him forever. As Psalm, the famous Psalm, Psalm 23, David desires that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love that. I mean, the, the, the whole meta-narrative of the Bible you just summed up right there. Mm -hmm. This idea from dwelling to dwelling. You know, I mean, there was something wrong. We were, we were in communion. We were, he would, God dwelled amongst man, then we lost it through the fall. And the rest of the Bible has these few ups and downs, these, the tabernacle to the exile to Jesus, this beautiful picture of God saying, no, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to dwell with you again. It's going to be a finished work. It's going to be a complete dwelling. Here are pictures of it, but one day it will be made completely new again. Amen. What a passionate love story. What a passionate picture of what the meta-narrative of the whole Bible is. Yeah, I think, I think we take for granted that storyline. I mean, we, like, even, even trying to situate ourselves in the midst of it and saying, okay, like, where do we fit in this? But then, you know, from a practical standpoint, as we, as we look back at Leviticus, it's like, okay, God has just brought these people uh, out of oppression, out of slavery, they're coming out of Egypt. Now what's he going to do with them? And who are they going to be? What are they going to be like? And, and so you guys, as, as you're framing it, like, 
Leviticus gives us a picture of, of not just locally what God's doing, but even like a, a like when we take it outside of just the Pentateuch and think, okay, full picture. Here's what God is is all about. He's he's bringing about. Uh, he's bringing people into his presence. And yeah, notice that he's not telling them how to build an army. I, I right. went to the terracotta soldiers in Xi'an, China, and literally the, the king who made those soldiers, he, he became king at like 12 years old. And the first thing he did when he became king was started building this army of terracotta soldiers that replicated his regular soldiers because he was preparing for the battle in the afterlife. And mm-hmm. Egyptian uh, kings did the same thing. Egypt, they, so when you start a nation historically, you prepare for war. Yeah. In this earth, you prepare your men and you prepare for war even in the afterlife. That's what a lot of the pyramids are about is, is like preparing for the afterlife. What God says is when I'm starting my nation with you, the most important thing is this tent, this not very big tent that's going to be in the middle of wherever you go. And it's, and it's, I'm, I'm the most important thing. Yeah. I'm yeah. your army. The only reason your army will do anything is if this tent with my presence goes with you mm-hmm. and I'm going to do that. And that's, that's why Leviticus is important because it, it brings us to this tent. Now what happens at the tent is, is kind of the second thing that's the most important about Leviticus because how can we stand before holy God? Yeah, that's so good. I mean, just just even thinking about like God's already teaching them how to live, not for not for the present life, but but even beyond, like in this promised rest that He's He's establishing. He's doing what every human wants to do. We all want to live for right. the future and prepare our family and have this long term yeah. family, long term like care of of ours, us and our descendants. But he's doing that not in the traditional way that the Egyptians would have done it or the Canaanites would have done it. He's showing them a new way, just yeah. like Jesus comes and shows us a new way, a new kingdom. Mm. Okay, so you guys, you're, you're painting this, this really attractive picture of Leviticus and even Leviticus' place in, in this grand picture, this grand story that God is telling. But you know, what, what about the person who's like, they're just not buying it. They're like, okay, what, what would you say to the person who says Leviticus is totally irrelevant to me? I mean, there's, there's no direct application to my life, right? So why should I even read it? And I, I get that question. I mean, when you first read Leviticus, you think these don't apply to me. This is for setting up a national identity for other people. I'm not building a company. years ago. Yeah. yeah, it's a long time ago. Um, I have iPhone now. You know, I, I, not, I mean, I'm not going to put any of this to memory. Like, exactly. Like, I'm not, <laughs> not going to. In, in my times of trouble, let me just memorize Leviticus fourteen twelve. And, right. Instructions on what to wear, what to so what to not eat. You know, that's not what you're doing, right? So it, I understand the temptation. I understand the reason why you think Leviticus is irrelevant to you, but it's often like. I liken it to the way you're, uh, if you love your wife, you want to know your wife's history. You want to know your wife's past. You want to know what makes her tick, makes her who she is. You know, you, you, to love her well, you want to know the things that uh, made her the way she is or the laws or the rules that formulate her kind of internal laws that drive her, her character. And that's what Leviticus does. It, sets, it shows you the character of God what he values, what's important to him. It also shows you the, this beautiful history, this redemptive history of who, what did Jesus do? He responded through Leviticus. He, did, he accomplished the work of Leviticus. So when you love someone, you want to pursue the history, the, you want to know all about them. Yeah, so we can't know about Jesus' Passover death and his resurrection and his atonement. Like the book of Hebrews is basically like telling us how does Jesus forgive our sins? 
Well, he does it because he fulfills what was required yeah. in Leviticus. And yeah, an interesting thing is these laws are boring and they're weird and they're, you know, they're, they're hard. But, you know, every once in a while, one of them is we actually follow. I, I, have you ever met anybody who had mold in their crawl space? Find someone who has mold in their crawl space. They'll spend t- thousands and thousands of dollars to demolish every piece of, of thing that that mold has touched. Mm-hmm. So even the Leviticus laws, as, as silly as they seem to us, like they're, they're, they were for them, for their time. So sometimes I think when we read them, we're just like, this makes no sense to me. And I would recommend as a Christian, you don't need to read Leviticus all the time over and over again. There are Bible scholars who are going to do that, but definitely... We need to understand Leviticus. We need to know why it's there. And we need to love it because it, it, it does ultimately, like, like Lawrence said, it's part of knowing Christ and knowing how, who God is and how he, how he made us and how he, how he worked through history. I think we take for granted even the idea of Jesus dying for our sin or the idea of Jesus as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we just take that for granted. We use those words because they're kind of in our culture. They're in our vernacular. Our now. Christian culture. Yeah, they're yeah, in our Christian culture. culture. If you grew up in the South in America, that's just part of your vernacular. That's just part of yeah. your culture. Yeah. But it, we don't really know what that means without Leviticus. Right. You know, we just don't have a concept of what does that mean? Because we don't know what holiness means without Leviticus. We don't know what atonement means without Leviticus. And this is what Jesus has accomplished for us. You know, so for us to truly get the work of Jesus, this book helps, helps us understand it. Yeah, I mean, as, as you guys are saying, like, the, the, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, terms and ideas that we just assume are, are New Testament ideas. But a lot of New Testament ideas are actually Old Testament ideas that are being fulfilled in the New Testament. Right. And so, so all, you know, as you're talking about sin and purification and, and atonement, like all, all these things, where do they come from? Well, we find them all in Leviticus. In every ancient culture that ever existed ever until about 100 years ago, and mainly because Christianity, as, as imperialism unfortunately spread throughout the world, but every ancient culture had an atonement uh, idea. They had some way for the priest or the king or the pharaoh or the emperor would come and atone for the sins of the people. In Beijing, there's the, there's the Tiananmen the main palace, but then down the street, there's the altar of heaven or the temple of heaven. And once a year, the emperor of China for 3000 years until 1911, every year on the Chinese new year would come and make an atonement for the people's sins. Like he literally would do a, a almost strikingly parallel uh, type ritual that we find in Leviticus like this was common to them. They knew that they were they needed to have some way to appease the gods, every ancient culture. And the cool thing about Christ is why don't we do this anymore? Because Christ did it once and for all. He was the final Passover lamb. He was the final sacrifice. So so for us this is totally weird. We don't we don't kill chickens, we don't butcher our own cows. Everything about it is weird. But up until about hundred years ago, this would have made a lot more sense to the average person almost anywhere in the world. And then hearing that Christ did it ultimately would would be so just, just they would be like, wow, I don't, my sins are atoned for, my sins are forgiven, so. Yeah, so so as we're talking about, you know, even, it, it, in some ways it seems like Leviticus, you could just pit it in some ways as 
a conversation or a book about sin and how to deal with it, which maybe is another strike against Leviticus, another reason why I would say, okay, like, I don't, I don't really want to read that. If, like, I can now just focus on grace, 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 why would I want to even read a book about sin? And, and even, even in Leviticus, it's setting up sin as, as missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. It's, uh, it's not living up to the standards. And so there's a sense in which there's, the, the law provides a burden, but as we were talking about, even of, there's, there's beauty in the law. Um, so the, the Lord has established a system, and the system seems very external. Uh, maybe, maybe the modern objection would be, that, like, this sounds like a very transactional system. Like, okay, I bring, I bring this animal and, or this grain and, and it's sacrificed and then, then I'm right with God and I can go on with my day. And I think that's probably a very modern way of, of looking at it. Or, or maybe it's the old relationship over religion debate that we all have heard before. But, but God says on, on numerous occasions that he, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. So it's it's both and. There, there's there's both aspects of this. So so why did God give Israel the sacrificial system? I love that you pose the the dilemma right away in that question. You know, because some people look at the idea of a sacrificial system and think, oh well, this seems kind of all I gotta do is sacrifice an animal and I'm good. Or this is how I get God to like me or give me a favor if I sacrifice something or burn something or do something. And you're right, it seems very transactional. You know, so I love that you created, you, you set up the stage with that dilemma initially. But then you come back, then you say this, but then you come back with, well, but God also says elsewhere, he doesn't desire that. You know, mm-hmm. it seems right. very external versus internal, this kind of debate. And so then what is the point of it is the question, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there's justice weaved in this exactly. because nobody would want okay, someone steals something and there's no penalty. Like the sacrificial system is we've harmed another person or we've done something against another person or we've done something against God and a penalty or some type of, viol- the violation requires some atonement. Some, something has to happen. For a judge to be just, you have to enforce the law. Right. And if the law says you can't do these things and then you do them, there, there has to be some kind of system to appease it. You pay the fine, you pay the ticket, you work off the debt, you do the thing that's required. So that we think of it as, what about grace, what about this? But somebody has to pay the, the cost of the violation of the trust or the violation of the law. And God, they're a new nation, so they, they need a system of laws, and God is allowing them to set this up. And it, they may seem weird to us, but ancient law, American laws from 1820 Durham would have, or 1850 Durham would probably <laughs> seem really weird yeah. to us, too. And that's our own country and our own city. Yeah. I've heard critics say stuff about the Code of Hammurabi. Eye for an eye, that thing, you know. Uh-huh. I've heard critics say, well, eye for an eye is just a terrible system because you just end up with people with one eye. Or uh, eye for a hand for a hand that you end up with no hands. People with no eyes or no hands and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, no, that wasn't the purpose of the code. And I'm not saying I'm a firm believer of the code of Hammurabi or anything like that. But the purpose of it was don't do it. Because if you do it, you'll lose an eye. Don't do that thing or you'll lose a hand. Mm-hmm. It wasn't I, I want everybody without hands or I want everybody without eyes. It was don't do that action that requires you to then pay the penalty of a hand or an eye. Mm-hmm. And so the beautiful thing is we miss often the system that was put into place is to create rules and express justice and to uh, show what righteousness and separation looks like and also to create identity. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I think too, even thinking about the scope of it, that who who can who can get in on this? Who who can be a part of this system? Well, there's all these there's all these uh, adjustments to the requirements for what what sacrifices can be made. So even even the poor can come into this, and like I, I think we we. It's hard to think about this this system because our our source of wealth is is monetary like it's it's monitored differently it's 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 equated differently and so I can't pay my parking ticket with a chicken right yeah like, like you know it's not you, you can't just barter with people you can't just like trade back and forth that way I mean I guess some people will, will let you do that you know if yeah, you give yeah. me uh, like you know some people I'll give are, you this roasted pork this and you, you give me. Uh, you give me something else. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah you like, wrong me, like so tra- give me that. Out, but, yeah. um, but God, God is God is allowing, even He's allowing anybody to get in on this. But but then too that I don't know. There there there, I can't imagine like at this point. I I don't usually see anything getting slaughtered or killed. But then to to like identify in a sense like my sin with that thing to say like okay my sin is deserving of death to to like see that played out again and again and even to you know being compelled to give offerings to show gratitude for what god has done like it's it's not just this rigid system that god's establishing but but ultimately in in creating this system like you you said earlier lawrence he's showing his character he and god just like a, a wise father he he wants us to be like him and the system that he's created, it's it's not just, oh, if I if I do this transaction, then then I have a good relationship with God. That's not how any relationship works, or it, or at least functions well of the way that we relate to each other. Like if our if our marriages were transactional, they would fall apart because we would, we would constantly be keeping a, a, the scoreboard saying, well, look at all the things that I've done. They outweigh all the things you've done, and God could always have the upper hand. But he's he's not this perennial uh, scorekeeper saying no. You need to measure up to me. You need to measure up to me. He's saying no. I want you to be like me. I want you to, to learn to love as I love and mm. to treat others in the same way that I am compassionate and kind toward others. To reflect who I am, my right. character. Right. To to even the the, the neighboring nations. Right. So how can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? But how can a holy God dwell among them and have a relationship with them? And Leviticus is setting the stage for that. Right. Leviticus, the whole Pentateuch points us to that, but Leviticus is kind of the pinnacle. And even the, the atonement, the day of atonement is the climax of the book of Leviticus. It's, it's like, okay, here's what makes you, you know, here are the sins that you commit, but I'm going to provide a day once a year where your sins are going to be forgiven. And it's a, it's a precursor to what happens in Christ. Like it, it's just a, a temporary solution to a, and it permanently happens when Jesus dies and is resurrected. It, it's fully satisfied. They, the people weren't saved. The book of Hebrews is very clear by the Day of Atonement. It was just preparing them. They're ultimately, even in the Old Testament, all the people who are saved are saved through the work of Christ. So it's, it's this beautiful system that we have, and that's part of why the book of Leviticus, as weird as it is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, so let's, and important. let's shift gears for a second. So... so Moving along and, and just understanding the different themes and that are being pulled out in, in Leviticus, one thing is this unclean, clean, unclean dynamic. Um, what, what does it mean to be clean or unclean? And even how does that relate to this idea that we, we're talking about of, of holiness? And to be honest, scholars have, are 
they debate and they don't understand all the different, why this animal is clean and why that one is. They can link it to Genesis. Day five, day six, there's, these are on the ground, these eat food in certain ways. There's some patterns that scientists and others might notice, but we don't exactly know like why some things are clean and unclean. We can figure out why mold is unclean because everybody hates mold. I, mm -hmm. I know this is the second time I'm using that example because I hate, I hate it when we had mold in our crawl space. But, but there's some other parts of these rituals like the women's monthly cycle or whatever, blood and stuff, that we'll never fully get into their cultural context. We can just speculate. But the good news is, is that all these things in Jesus, he fulfills the law and who does Jesus hang out with most of the time? Who does he spend a lot of time healing and the gospel writers record? Lepers, the bleeding woman. He, he almost like shows, I'm, gonna, I'm consummating the kingdom. I'm bringing in the kingdom and all these things that are part of the brokenness, I'm reversing and I'm making them, I'm making things new. So Whereas the Pharisees had taken Leviticus and almost turned it on its head and turned it into an ungracious thing. Leper, get, leper, get away from me. Jesus is like, no, leper, come to me because you can be clean in Christ. And even how Jesus weaves the forgiveness of sins and the, the cleaning and the healing of them, it's, it's, it's really, really important for us to begin to understand Jesus's ministry by looking at Leviticus and looking at how they would have thought of things. And for all of you out there, you can go to Mark chapter 7, around verse 15, and really see how Jesus begins to turn this on its head. And he's like, it's not what touches you or what comes into your body that makes you unclean, but it's really what comes out. Mm -hmm. And that's, so we, we can see how Jesus, like this was a temporary thing that couldn't fully, they couldn't do this. That's why they needed this Messiah. Moses could set up the structure but it, it, so, the, so instead of focusing on why is this one clean and why is this one unclean, I would focus more on how does this fully get realized in Christ? And I think so much of it is about creating separation. I know that sounds weird to say it that way, but when I was a kid, my mom would always say, that's not what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not how we act. Yeah. You know, if, if I was a bully, my mom said, no, 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 no. We don't bully people. We protect. That's what we do. You know, my, my children, uh, we said, we're not rude to our elders. You know, but that's not what we do. That's who we are is this. What, what God is showing it with his people, with his clean, unclean, what to eat, even the dietary list, he's establishing identity and saying, no, we're not like everybody else. You are my people. You are set apart. We're different. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that you think about even now. I mean, when we think of the, about Jewish people nowadays, one of the things you kind of jump out in your mind culturally is dietary laws. Mm -hmm. It created a separation. It created something different about them. You know, that's what God was doing. He said, These are, you guys are different. You're separated, set apart. You're my people. So circumcision and dietary laws were probably the two things that did separate them mm -hmm. and allowed for them to be a nation for so long and to... Not in a, and Jesus shows us how to deal with all that. So that's one of the beautiful things about the Gospels, you know. And, and I think even the laws, they bring justice, they bring dignity too. Like, like I said in last week's podcast, like people love to quote Old Testament laws when they talk about helping the refugee or helping the widow or the oppressed, because those are part of it. And, and overall, the laws are about holiness, they're about sacrifice, they're about justice, and they're about these sacred spaces. So, but sometimes they're put together and they're not categorized like we would maybe categorize our laws. 
So it gets a little confusing for us, you know, 3,000 years removed. But it's important for us to see it so we can understand who we are as Christians and, and the, the context of the New Testament and what the work of Jesus actually does and what Jesus' kingdom is bringing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. I mean, so, so final thoughts, guys. Um, how, how does the book of Leviticus benefit us as we understand or as, as we try to approach reading the New Testament? Yeah, I feel like I've, I feel like I've said it all. So, I mean, I, I think I just encourage all of you to, to just read it. Maybe use New Living Translation or an easier translation to get to really just read it in a large chunk and then and then go to the New Testament and, and, and see how God, how God, what Jesus does and how everything he's doing is fulfilling and fulfilling the law. And he's becoming all these things that were required for us to be right with God. I would encourage you as you read it to first think about the beautiful storyline of the whole Bible. Yeah. You know, think about this God's taking us from communion, dwelling with him in perfect paradise to that again. You know, think about what, how that whole storyline. Then think about the separateness of Leviticus, the system that God put in place to separate his people, to show them as different, and then also to show them that there is coming, paint a picture of a coming salvation, you know, a coming atoning sacrifice that will be once and for all, that will accomplish them, that will lead to the restoration of Eden. You know, and then in light of that, as you go to see, wow, let's see the, it's built up all the way to like what separates us, what's clean, unclean, all the way to the day of atonement. And you see that happening in Leviticus, let that, let you rejoice in that as you're reading that saying, this is, wow, this is what they're looking forward to, but we have it ultimately in Christ. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thanks guys. Thank you guys. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to What's the Point? Stay tuned as we continue in our Pentateuch series. If there's anything we said today you found interesting or spurred on more questions, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Grace and peace, everyone.